The Lifestylist, episode 113, featuring Guru Singh. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. I want to share with you guys something that I'm really excited about and that actually Guru Singh was really excited about too. After we recorded this episode, we sat down with my amp coil, which I brought with me because I heard that he was interested in learning about it, and we did an amp coil session. I almost wish we would have done it during or before the interview, but it's a perfect time to tell you guys about it because it's very much in alignment with the whole conversation that I had with Guru Singh. Now, a few episodes ago, I did an entire interview with the founders of Amp Coil. So if you want to dive really, really deep into that, you can go back and get an hour of this information. But it's relevant to this particular episode because Kundalini Yoga and the spiritual science that Guru Singh works with is all about bioresonance and sound and vibration, right? Everything is a vibration. And that's the basis of the amp coil. And I first discovered it because I'm always looking for something that's effective in alleviating the symptoms of Lyme disease because my own mother suffered from Lyme for a long time. And so I've been researching and researching and I finally found something that has really good efficacy when it comes to um, helping people with that particular thing. Now, I didn't know that there were all these other applications of consciousness and spirituality and energy healing and all this other crazy stuff. So the Amp Coil is very unique because they combine a number of different technologies that have been around for many, many years and are totally scientifically viable and vetted into one device. So it's got bioresonance, biofeedback, Tesla technology, PEMF, and sound all in one. So it's really fantastic. If you want to check it out, it's too much for me to go into here. As I said, go back to that episode or just go to ampcoil.com. It's a family business, very cool people. They'll be more than happy to answer any questions, but it's definitely worth checking out. That's ampcoil.com. Today's show is brought to you by my friends over at Four Sigmatic. Now, you guys know for a while now, I've been into their medicinal mushroom blends, the little packets that you make these amazing elixirs with. However, they've got some new stuff they're rolling out that I'm really into, namely their coffee. They've got mushroom-infused coffee in both decaf and regular. Now, I'm really into decaf, especially the Swiss water extract because it's non-toxic. Sometimes I get too hyped and I got to keep it calm. So I like to mix in some decaf coffee sometimes. I'm not trying to hammer my adrenals. So go to foursigmatic.com, check out their coffee blends. They've also got amazing uh, mushroom matcha with lion's mane. So there's a number of different drinks. And what I really like about their superfood and herbal blends is that they're really easy to use. They come in little packets, you add hot water and you're good to go. Very portable, very convenient. We call this compliance in the health industry, meaning that they're really easy to use. They're not a pain in the ass like a lot of other healthy products, and they taste delicious. So they're organic, super powerful, super easy to use. That's what I look for when I'm representing a product. So go to foursigmatic.com. But wait, it gets even better. 
If you enter the code LUKESTORY over at Four Sigmatic, you will save 15% off your order. So go to foursigmatic.com, enter the code LUKESTORY, and save 15%. Hey, did you know that you can catch this episode of the podcast and many others over on my YouTube channel? That's right. When I sat down with Guru Singh in his living room in front of the fire to record this epic conversation, we also had a video camera rolling. You can watch that on YouTube as well as the new Facebook group. If you go to Facebook and search the word Lifestylist Podcast, you will find an outstanding brand new Facebook group just for you, the listener, where we do all kinds of behind the scenes videos, Q and A's, and all sorts of amazing stuff. So join us on those places for the video feeds. Along with that, I've got a show coming at you this Friday. That's number 114 with Quantified Bob. And while this episode with Guru Singh is largely of the metaphysical realm, Quantified Bob is the ultimate biohacker, so this Friday's episode is not one you want to miss. Make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss Quantified Bob or any episodes to follow, the least of which being my special New Year's Eve show where I, Luke Story, am captured live in Aspen, Colorado. Welcome to Santa's Workshop. This is Luke Story. I'm one of the elves. I'm here to bring you a very special Christmas episode of the Lifestylist Podcast featuring our guest, Guru Singh. This is a really special episode on a very auspicious day. It brings me great pleasure, and I'm really honored to bring this one to you. Uh, Normally, of course, we release on Tuesdays, but Christmas happened to fall on a Monday, and I wanted to get this episode out on this day. For whatever reason, it just felt right. And it's one that I'm really excited about. Now, normally I would cut an episode this long. I think we go almost two hours in this interview slash conversation. Normally I'd cut that into two halves, but honestly, there was just nowhere to break up the flow here. Uh, Guru Singh was just dropping the knowledge bombs left and right. And, uh, and you will not be disappointed. So I want to encourage you to really take some time. You might have to take this in a couple halves, depending on what you're doing this holiday season. Uh, but I want to tell you that this is a very meaningful, heartfelt, and profound conversation with a true master. I've been studying with Guru Singh for a few years over at Yoga West, and I've always loved listening to this man talk, as thousands and thousands of others do across the globe. So who is this Guru Singh character? Here you go. Guru Singh is a celebrated third-generation yogi, master spiritual teacher, author, and musician who gracefully brings ancient spiritual practices and philosophies into the now with ease, humanity, humility, and a healthy dose of humor. He fuses Eastern mysticism into Western pragmatism in an accessible and transformative way. He is the student of the masters Paramahansa Yogananda and Yogi Bhajan and shares their dedication to an enriched and enlightened life. Rooted in the principles of humanology, kundalini yoga, meditation, and sacred sound, he teaches conscious living through classes, workshops, trainings, and conversations like this one that inspire the minds, hearts, and souls of his globe-spanning students your host being one of them. So what do we talk about in this conversation? Well, for one thing, (laughs) it was just a really special day for me because I went over to his house and he and his lovely wife greeted me and my uh, buddy Elliot and uh, we set up our gear and then we realized the room was too small where we were because we were in his back little meditation studio, which was super vibey, but there was no way all my crazy gear was going to fit in there. So we finally got settled and I also brought my amp coil 
which is this fantastic consciousness healing device that I've, I've already done a show on, so you can go back and listen to that. Uh, so I got my amp coil, I've got all my gear, and then we sat in front of a fire and just sat on meditation cushions, busted out the guitar. I mean, it was one of the most fun and uh, intriguing interviews I've ever done, and this was the 113th show, so I've done a few of them. Here's what we talk about in this conversation, although there's plenty more, but I'm just going to hit some of the main bullets here. What it was like to grow up as a third-generation yogi and the fascinating story of how his family were early adopters of Eastern teachings. What the LA yoga scene was like in 1969 when he met Yogi Bhajan. What it was like to hang out with spiritual giants like Muktananda and Osho. And the Muktananda story he tells is just fantastic, especially because that was the first, for me at least, that was the first uh, Eastern... Indian guru that I had the uh, good fortune of being in the presence of when I was a little kid. So I, I'm really fascinated by stories about Muktananda. So that was just a geek out, super guru fan moment for me. What his first yoga class would like. And then did Yogi Bhajan have superhuman powers and why do spiritual masters use metaphysical tricks to capture the attention of devotees? How to be magical yet still logical how he got his spiritual name, and the relevance it has to him all of these years later, why he believes language is such a powerful tool of transformation. Then we discussed the fact that even enlightened masters are still human and make frequent mistakes. Uncovering the science behind kundalini yoga. This is fascinating. He unpacks this in such a profound way. How mantras, music, and sound vibrations raise our consciousness. The powerful effects of yogic breath work and why it's so important to make this practice a part of your life. His secret to always tuning in to universal wisdom when teaching his classes and how he used intuition to receive the cosmic downloads over the years. How to stay humble and not let your spiritual ego take over your true personality. The importance of ego as a part of who we are and why it's pointless to try and fight it. And the surprising reasons he wears a turban and his spiritual wardrobe choices. So this is a very special episode. Again, Merry Christmas wherever you are in the world, whatever your beliefs are. I like to say Merry Christmas because that's how I was raised and it holds a special place in my heart as an American boy who grew up in the 70s and is still in the process of growing up. And I'd like to say that Guru Singh has played a big part in making that possible. So without further delay or ado, I bring to you on this very special day a very meaningful conversation with the great Guru Singh. So good to see you today, Guru Singh. Welcome to the Lifestylist Podcast. There you go. We finally got it done, folks. So I've been going to your classes probably, I don't know, six years or so. And even before I had the podcast, I was like, man, I, I would really love to sit down with that guy someday and ask him very specific questions, you know, because there's so many things that you've taught in your classes that just blow my mind, <laughs> you know, but I'm, you're in a yoga class, so you can't take notes. But I'm always like, oh God, I've got to remember to ask him about that sometimes. So here we are, we've scheduled it, we're here. Thank you so much for being here. And you can take notes in the class. As a matter of fact... I see a lot of people taking notes in the class. Oh, do they? Yeah. That's good to know because I'll hear things and then think I got to remember that, but I don't want to like get out of flow and start taking notes, but maybe I will. Yeah. People have their books, their journal books all around them. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I've noticed about your classes too over the years. I mean, aside from any other types of yoga, but specifically within the Kundalini community is there's a heavy element of knowledge sharing. Hmm. 
and then almost like an equal amount of yoga. Mm-hmm. So I, whenever I bring people to your class, I'm always like, dude, just be ready to pay attention. This is not like the space out type of kundalini situation. This is like a download. So I can see why people would definitely want to be recording that. Yogi Bhajan would often say that um, in order to have an awakening, you have to have an experience. And that experience serves the essence of you. But in order to get the monkey mind to quiet down, you have to give it information. You have to let it have an understanding of what you're doing. And so that's the purpose of the download is to go, okay, before we do what we do, let's understand why we're going to do what we do. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That actually works really well because especially with Kundalini, which is basically the only yoga I practice these days, I really like to know like why we're doing what we're doing, yeah. what it does. It's just the way, I totally. guess, all monkey minds work. But The brain. You know, mind, I definitely can buy into something if I understand the purpose of it. Mm-hmm. You know? The head brain, yeah. Because we've really rebelled over these last couple of generations against that dogma, you know, believe it because it's so. No, I want to believe it because I know how it got to be so. Hmm? And so my nickname, according to Yogi Bhajan, was Question Sing. <laughs> because I would ask him, I was his driver for years, and I would just sit there in the car and just ask him and ask him and ask him all the questions that I like yeah. what you're doing today. That's You didn't even have to have a podcast. <laughs> I get to do that with so many amazing people just because I have some recording gear that I lug around with me. Yeah. So that's exactly what we're going to really eventually go into here in this conversation is the how and the why of the yoga practice. But I want to go back and talk a little bit about your beginnings because you've been doing this for so long. You're, as I understand, a third generation yogi. So that being the case, how the hell did your American ancestors end up in yoga in the first place? Well, it started back in the early part of the 20th century. World War I was coming on, and my mother and her mother and father left England to come to America. And at the same time, my grandfather's sister, or my grand-aunt, went the other direction. She went to India and ended up in Calcutta, because everybody was leaving Europe because of the First World War. And so my grand-aunt, or as they sometimes say, great-aunt, she ended up in Calcutta and met Sri Yukteswar, who was Paramahansa Yogananda's guru. So she studied with Sri Yukteswar from 1916. She, you know, she was around for about three years, and then she met these people. And then so for the next three years, from 1916 to 1919, she studied with that whole group. And um, in 1919, when uh, Paramahansa Yogananda was being sent to Boston, she was sent with him. No way, that is so crazy. And she served him until his death in 1952 as an assistant, right? And so it was a huge influence on my parents who were married in 1933 in Seattle. And I was born in 1945. So between her being with Paramahansa Yogananda in 1919 and 1924, they moved to Los Angeles right? Paramahansa and his, and his team. And then they built self-realization uh, basically out of Southern California. And that was a huge influence on my family. So before I even arrived, this was the major influence. And when I grew up in Seattle, uh, starting in 1945, uh, I was one of the neighborhood weirdos because, you know, 
you're not uh, you're not of the norm. <laughs> I can imagine. So then, when I met Yogi Bhajan in 1969, it was just a segue. It was just a perfect, you know, fade in, fade out. Because Kriya Yoga and Kundalini Yoga, all revolving around the same principles of raising that energy through the spine, it was a natural. That's crazy. So you obviously have looked at the karmic implications of how fortuitous it was yeah. for you to have been well, exposed it, to that, right? I mean, yeah. that doesn't just happen to your average Joe. Yeah, I went to a palmist about a year ago with our son. We were just, that was our birthday present was he and I had a date at palmist. And this palmist was, it's Dr. Sachi. He comes from 400 years of palmistry, passed through his family in South India. So he looks at our son's hand and he goes, a monk, right? And he looks at my hand and he goes, you dropped in early. He says, you were supposed to be born in 1966. Wow. <laughs> so wow. I, I took a quick route, right, and dropped in early to catch some of the family goods. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I think to have early exposure like that, and it's cool because obviously your kids have been exposed to a really from high birth. degree of consciousness from day one. Uh, in my situation, I definitely was not raised around much of this, but when I was eight years old, my mom took me to see Muktananda ah, yes. at an ashram in Oakland. It was maybe 78, 79. I would have been eight or nine. And that one little spark, I mean, who knows what kind of Shakti was happening in the room that day. Big. But I just remember I loved it. And at that age, the only thing I loved was Star Wars, you know? And it was like, I wanted to go back to the ashram. I loved the experience. And it stuck with me from that point moving forward, just the look of you know, ancient texts laying around and the pillows and the incense and the bare feet. And, well, that's, and the what brought, that's what got you hooked on Star Wars too is because Star, <laughs> cause Star Wars was out there in the cosmos. Right. And so was this. Right. I mean, Star Wars is kind of like the Gita in a sense. Okay. You know what I mean? It is. It's the same kind of tale. Our son was born in 77 and he was a huge Star Wars advocate. Yeah, yeah. So I feel fortunate to have been given that little mm. intro, that taste where, you know, I always, even though my life took some really strange and dark turns, there was always this yearning toward the East. Mm. And I remember getting, uh, when I was about 23 and I was still at like in the throes of addiction and not in a high place at all, but I was given the book, I Am That. Mm. And that was another one of those little signposts. Like I could only read about three sentences at a time because mm. it, it was just too dense. Mm. I, at the same time, I knew there was some truth there. And you could unpack it yeah. as you would read read three and then unpack it. Yeah. And it, then read three <laughs> and then unpack it. And I still don't even know that it made sense intellectually, but I knew at least at that time that there was something beyond my little limited world, you know. Kotodama. Kotodama is a, a Japanese word that refers to those kinds of word strings that don't necessarily make intellectual sense, but they're doing a shift in the back of the brain as kotodama, where you're, you know, you're reading and you go, okay, I'm full up there. And then you have to unpack it. And it's literally the way in which words, even mantric words that we may not understand, but they're resonating in that way that is bypassing the intellectual guard Right, because the intellectual guard will try and keep you in your familiar zone, so that you understand, you know, and you're you're not being led outside of that 
intellectual zone. Yeah, it's good. So you met Yogi Bhajan in 69. January 10. And this is here in L.A., and I can imagine during that time there was a lot of drugged out hippies and people in music. You, you know, of course, were in the music industry. Uh, what was the climate like at that time? And when he rolled into Los Angeles, was there anyone else like him around? Were there other teachers and gurus and a yoga scene pre-existing that he kind of dipped into? Mm. So Swami Satchitananda, Swami Muktananda, they were all in that same area, that same time frame, uh, and Yogi Bhajan. As a matter of fact, uh, we had some good times with Swami Muktananda and Swami Satchitananda, and, and I got a great story. Oh, uh, please, enlighten we were, us. <laughs> so this was probably in like 1969, 1970, somewhere in that area, and we were at a person's house down in Malibu. There's a picture of Yogi Bhajan at that house giving Swami Satchitananda a foot massage. It was a good one, you know, it was like deep, like a deep tissue work. And the look on Swami Satchitananda's face in this photograph is he's, he's wincing like this and Yogi Bhajan is digging in, right? So, you know, we were having an afternoon and I had been his driver so that I was there with everybody and... Um, they said, oh, let's have a, I understand you're a runner, Guru Singh. I understand you can run. And I looked at them like, what's this, a setup? So they said, let's go down to the beach and we'll have a foot race, they called it. And so Swami Satchitananda, Yogi Bhajan, Swami Muktananda and I will go down to the beach. And we're on the beach. Swami Satchitananda says, okay, because he was the talker at this particular moment. He says, okay, I'll, I'll give us a mark to go. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm running against uh, yogis and swamis in their late 30s, early 40s, and I'm 23 years old, and I can run like the wind, but I don't know what their tricks are, so I better just take off, really make it good. So <laughs> on your mark, get set, Go! And I just took off running and there was nothing in my periphery. And I was running and we had said that we'll run down to a breakwater, uh, a jetty, and then turn around and come back. And so when I got down to that jetty, I turned around and they were all still at the starting line, laughing and pointing at me and laughing. And I, so I trot back to the starting line and Yogi Bhajan looks up to me and says, you're late. We won. <laughs> and so that was, uh, that was what the nature of the times at their level when they came in to the United States at that time and space. And I was one of those who went through the, went through the 60s drug-free. Um, I had been a yogi since birth. Drugs were not my need. I had died at the age of 20 in a hospital, spent an minute and 45 seconds with no heartbeat, no breath. Had had a phenomenal experience, so yoga all my life, lead up to a death experience, move out from that, go through my time in Mexico that followed that, that's all written in a book that I wrote called Buried Treasures, and then come into meeting the yogi, right? Yogi Bhajan, and the whole scene. And Yogi Bhajan's primary goal was to give people through kundalini yoga as he was teaching it an opportunity to get that same sensation of fulfillment and meaning 
without the need for some substance. And to get the same capacity to shield yourself from all the bombardment of the noise that's constantly around us without the need for some nerve um, deadening substance. It was a powerful time and he would take people, send them out here, San Francisco, Phoenix, Tucson, Dallas, Philadelphia, Amsterdam, you know, people, and I'm sitting around going, thinking, okay, I'm next. He's going to send me someplace. Okay, I'm next. And, I mean, I had a recording contract with Warner Brothers, but I wasn't interested in getting back into the, the music right now. I was interested in this. So I would ask him one day, I said, so when are you going to send me out? And he said, never. He said, you're staying right here. And I said, oh, God, you really? You know, I have to stay here? And uh, he's, I've been here ever since, you know. I mean, we travel the world, but this has been our base. When he sent people out, would he send them out to start yeah. ashrams and yoga centers and Absolutely. things like that? So they were sort of missionaries for the cause, so to speak. Yeah, well, you know, people go through nine-month teacher training programs. The teacher training program back then was that you'd been coming to class for a month or two, and he'd say, okay, chant <laughs> Ong Namo Gurudev Namo, go to Tucson, open up a yoga center. Wow. And it was, it was like divine guidance, you know? Right. Yeah. So, God, there's so many things to unpack there. Like during the course of that story and those, those couple stories, I'm like, there's 20 things in each one that I could go into. But I want to back up to, just because I have a personal vested interest in the Muktananda mm -hmm. story. I mean, it's not every day you meet someone. It's like, oh, Muktananda, I used to hang out with him. Yeah. I interviewed John Gray and he had spent a lot of time with him as well. And I'm like, tell me stories, tell me stories. So I want to indulge myself, but at the same time, you know, keep the audience in mind. And I want to talk definitely about Yogi Bhajan in this capacity, but with Muktananda and these different guys that were around, I mean, did you witness things that were otherworldly, those mm -hmm. little sort of guru sleights of hand that mm -hmm. pique the interest and get us on board with the deeper message that was there? Yeah, and that all started years earlier for me in my death experience and then my subsequent journey into the Copper Canyons of Mexico and lived with a shamanic culture that was also drug-free, right? They were not into any of the um, psychotropics. They were into initiations or, should we say, um, rites of passage that were very natural and very, very compelling. Uh, and I saw a lot of what I call magic. Right? There's the logical world mm -hmm. from which we get the word law and it's about everything that is definable, predictable, understandable, perceivable. That's the world of three and four dimensional logic. And the magic, like conception of a child. I mean, obviously we can see it through, you know, through high powered microscopes and all of that, but we can't view it with our senses. And how does it happen? How does this happen? How does that happen? And how does foretelling the moments happen? How does that deep intuitive capacity to know exactly what's going to happen before it happens? How does it work for you to ask a question and get the answer as you're halfway through the question because the person that you're asking the question of is of such a universal mind's consciousness that they don't need you to completely verbalize everything? 
How does it happen when you walk up to someone and you're going to ask a question, you haven't even asked it yet, that they give you the answer and then kind of turn away with kind of a smirk on their face because they know that that's what's happening. And think of Sri Yukteswar and, and Paramahansa Yogananda, where Sri Yukteswar could bilocate, could be in more than one location at the same time, could move his body faster than a body can move. Um, so many of these really, really magical capacities. Yeah. And that's exactly what you, your crew, myself, and everybody that we are of like mind and like heart with are going to need to be doing now at this moment in history because this is not the time for a great iconic leader. This is the time for great iconic mastery amongst millions. Part of what I was always asking Yogi Bhajan about was, you know, why this, why that, why the other thing, like you do in interviews. And people like Swami Muktananda, Swami Satchitananda, and Yogi Bhajan, they all had this blessing of universal capacity, universal awareness of the brain-mind connection, the, the brain-mind, the universal mind and the individual brain being connected in a much larger bandwidth than the normal everyday activity requires. Everything that they taught, whether it's Swami Muktananda, Swami Satchitananda, Yogi Bhajan, uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who then became Osho after his passing, Everything that they were teaching was to create that, to muster up that capacity in the student. They weren't here to be known as great. They were here to create great. And that's what this time requires is that we, and that's why they would only do that very slightly. You know, they would only demonstrate that magic, as you say, to really capture your attention. And then they'd look the other way and you'd say, well, did, was that, was, did, did, I just, did I just witness? And they go, oh, cha, cha, cha. No, 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 no. <laughs> and you'd go, whoa, right? That's funny. Because what they didn't want you to do, they didn't want you to become like this, right? Just glued to them as this capacity, but to be glued to your higher self right. as the way. Right. Not so, so you don't get trapped in the curiosity of the ego. Like, yeah. oh, yeah, show me tricks, well, show me tricks. Yeah, uh, I would say the curiosity of the, of, the, of the mindless ego. Because ego is a word that is uh, misunderstood and misused. Ego is the glue that holds soul and body. And so the larger your ego, the more soulful you can work. Wow, interesting. But what happens is so that... So case in point, someone like a Yogi Bhajan who has yeah, a really huge, huge personality. Huge personality. Just, he would yeah. say, I have, I have a massive ego, meaning him. He mm -hmm. would say, he had a massive ego. And he'd say, ego is what ego does. It's just like money. Money is what money does. Money can be the root of all evil, or it can make the blessings for the world. Feed the poor. House the homeless. So money is what money does. Ego is what ego does. So this whole thing, I'm glad you got there. This whole thing about be egoless, be desireless, you know, all these crazy things. <laughs> yeah, good luck this with is, that. <laughs> this is, yeah, Yogi Bhajan gave us an exercise once. He said, okay, everybody just exhale. So we all exhaled. He said, now hold it. And we all held it. He says, are you feeling some desire? <laughs> right? You cannot... 
be desireless. You cannot be egoless because you have to hold soul and body. And for holding soul and body and doing something really outstanding is important. What I refer to all of those sayings as is the emperor's languaging. And I'm not referring to any individual or form of individual individuality, but the language of the emperor's realm is the language of subjugation. You want to subjugate the masses so that you can assume that role of being in charge of the masses. Hmm? The emperor's position. Uh-uh. Not in the future. I mean, we're just experiencing out in the world today. We're experiencing on all, on all continents just really, really corrupt, corrupt leadership. I mean, everywhere. It holds to the fact that in the Kali Yuga, it is said that truth is what you convince someone of. Right? Wow. And so what is happening in today's world is the doublespeak. That's interesting. Of 1984, right? The, yeah. The book 1984 and the whole idea of doublespeak. And so the emperor is... doublespeak where what's being stated is actually the inverse of truth? It's like everything's almost a mirror of... It's like Richard Pryor <laughs> once said in a joke. Are you going to believe my words or your lying eyes? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Or as, as the propagandist once said, that uh, you say something and repeat it often enough, it becomes a truth. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we have an opportunity with these great lives that have gone before us, such as Swami Muktananda and Yogi Bhajan, Swami Satchitananda, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, etc., etc., Prabhupada, to practice all of these different forms and really master them and achieve that sleight of hand, but not get sucked into getting infatuated by that capacity of knowing what is to be because you've. Um, you want to just act as if it's part of life. Really, a human being should be very magical as well as very logical so that they're not completely absorbed in the magic and they can't function in the world. Yeah, yeah. You've got to be able to function and levitate. Well, I think that's what's interesting going back to those gurus is the ones that really had an impact seem to be able to walk between both worlds. Mm -hmm. Here they have these seemingly otherworldly capacities, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, you got Yogi Bhajan driving around in a really nice car, Osho having a bunch of cars, you know. Yeah. They all still had their humanity and shortcomings, mm -hmm. but it seems like if they wanted to, they could have just somewhat permanently lived in this ethereal high space, but it's almost like they interacted with the people that were a little bit further back on the trail just in order to bring them all forward, as you said, to create yeah. more teachers, you know? Yeah, forward scouts, right? But I mean, yeah, imagine the, the amount of, for me, it's like, oh my God, the amount of uh, sort of discipline it would take to not be using my powers for evil or for attention self. or power, you know, power. For the self, yeah. yeah. And that's why this path is so powerful, this path that we're all on, whatever path, whatever form we're in, right? Whatever form of yoga, whatever form of meditation, whatever form we're in is so powerful because it doesn't actually ever allow us to gain those powers before we're ready to use them benevolently. Right. 
Yeah, because it's weird. You don't see gurus on the TV manifesting the booty out of their hand. And, you know, it's like I, even when I was younger and I first heard these stories, I thought, well, why are, how come they're not on Oprah, like showing everyone miracles? And mm -hmm. it's like, mm, it's almost mm -hmm. like you're not given that mm -hmm. power unless you are able to be a responsible steward of it, you know? Exactly. And you use the power not to show, but you use that power to enable people to see. Mm. Because if you're just there to show, then they're going to become enamored. But right. if you use that power, rather than showing them, enabling them to see much more, hear much more, feel and sense much more, by giving them a discipline, by giving them a practice, personal daily practice. Yeah, and I think as the, the daily practice sort of uncovers each of our abilities to use some of those what are even sometimes seem supernatural powers it's the practice that keeps you sort of following the breadcrumb trail mm -hmm. like i'll have days where everything is just so mystical and i'm mm -hmm. i'm hearing someone's thoughts before they verbalize mm -hmm. them and all those things but then the next day i'm brought back down to earth because i got a parking ticket or some human you know earth level thing happened and i'm like ah and i sink back into more of you know the base nature so it's like it seems in my life, the discipline of all of these practices like Kundalini, it's like I get just enough to keep me going to know, know that there's more to go for, but never so much that I forget kind of where I came from. You know, there's this mm. balancing interplay mm -hmm. between me and God that's sort of like, you know, lets me go as far as I'm able to, but not so far out that I lose my shit. Speaking of parking ticket that you just mentioned... One time I had driven to some place with Yogi Bhajan in the car and we parked and we did what we did and when we came back there was a parking ticket on the car and Yogi Bhajan picked up the parking ticket and he sat there and he read it and he looked at me and he said, it's been a little more expensive today. <laughs> and he was good with that. Yeah. And I said, you know, that was, the, that was the most beautiful reaction to a parking ticket that I've ever seen. He said, mastery is responding to a good phone call and a parking ticket with the same enthusiasm. He said, what we'll do when we pay this parking ticket is we'll pay somebody's wage, which will buy somebody's food, which will give somebody clothing. He said, everything is the same channel. It's all making something good. That's awesome. That's Isn't a great, that great story. Yeah. I mean, that's when the spiritual, you know, how much spiritual uh, attainment one has been able to be graced with is like how you handle those things. Like mm. for me, I'm always trying to keep balance when something quote unquote good happens and I get my way and what I willed to happen happened and not get so elated and excited that I have to come down mm -hmm. later or on the other end of it to get in the parking ticket and keeping that experience right-sized. Mm. You know, I've, I've had the experience where I freaked out and kicked my car because I had a ticket. But then I've had other, I mean, years ago, thankfully not recently. But then there's other times I go, okay, this is a piece of paper with some ink on it that is supposed to tell something to, to my mind. And my mind can look at it in so many different ways. It's got these things we call numbers that don't mean anything. Mm. The only meaning is what we assign to them. Oh, that points to some digital 
numerical code on a master computer somewhere at Chase in Des Moines, Iowa mm -hmm. that says I have this much amount of money, which doesn't actually exist. There's no gold behind it. And, you know, I mean, you can start going down the rabbit hole mm -hmm. and make so much meaning out of a parking ticket when mm -hmm. all that happened was someone put a piece of a tree on a piece of glass and metal that I think I own, but I don't actually own. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's a piece of bark on that windshield. That's what it is at the end of the day. Yeah. But try getting the mind to, no, you know. Not try, practice. Yeah. Practice. Yeah. So, I mean, isn't it totally dependent on our perception and how we contextualize things? Yeah, the Buddha said that existence is suffering. Not that existence causes it, but the fact that we exist means that we have separated from the total. We are the Atma of the Paramatma. We are the soul particle of the total soul. Like as they always use the, ex the metaphor of the bubble in the ocean, right? We are a bubble on the, on the surface of the ocean, but we are still the ocean. And one of the things that the Buddha also said was anything experienced fully turns to joy because the base, you know, no matter what color you paint your walls, they all come from the same base coat, that same base. So you go to the paint store to buy a gallon of paint and he brings out base or she brings out a gallon of white paint. It's the base. And then they put a squirt of this and a squirt of that and a squirt of something else and they shake it up and it becomes this incredible color that you put on your walls. So within every color on every wall is that base coat, that base color. The base of all physical matter is ease. Any disruption or variation of that ease is called dis-ease. The base in the emotional body is joy. And any other emotion experienced from that is a disruption of joy. So if you experience whatever emotion you're having and just allow yourself to experience it fully and keep experiencing it, pretty soon it starts to dissolve and you get back to joy. It's like you talking about the piece of bark on the piece of glass connected to the piece of rubber connecting to the metal, you know. When you boil it down to that, all you do is smile and laugh, right? It does. It makes everything... But when it's fully yeah. packed and it's all compressed together, then it has this entire different meaning which we attach to. And those are the attachments that the yogis called maya, the illusion. But the non-illusion is that ease is physicality, joy is emotionality, Knowing is mental. The, the mental base is knowing. We know everything. If we would go back into the base of, of our brain-mind conveyance, that connection between your brain and the universal mind, it's like a computer connected to Wi-Fi, connected to the Internet. Type in any question, you'll get some answers back. You don't have to have the answer on the computer itself. You have to have access to the total. 
when you learn to quiet the mind, the brain-mind connection, that's when the brain has access to the total mind. And that's when you know everything. One thing Yogi Bhajan once said, and it's actually taught in all of the teacher training courses, um, never say, I don't know. Yeah. Mm. Never say, I don't know, because it's a lie. Wow. You do know. You just have to figure out how to access. You have to know how to ask, then you have to know how to receive. And the way you ask and receive is that mental body of knowing. And then the, the spirit body, right? The base of the spirit body is liberation. So you have ease, joy, knowing, and liberation. And it's said that, well, what is love? Well, love is the ocean in which all the ease, joy, knowing, and liberation exists. So the ease, joy, knowing, and liberation is your physicality, your emotionality, your mentality, and your spirituality existing within an ocean of love. And when you feel that none of those is complicating things, none of those is threatening you, you feel safe. When you feel safe, you experience love. And that's why you meet somebody who just completely flips your world and you don't feel any physical you know, abnormalities, you don't feel any emotional nonsense, you don't feel any mental questioning, you don't feel any spiritual upset, you go, wow, I think I'm falling in love with you. <laughs> <laughs> but what they've done is they've just made you feel safe. Right. Yeah. I remember my wife and I mean, you know, you meet somebody and you have one of those moments, right? And the first time I ever saw her, by the way, we never dated. We just got married, right? The first time I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. First, wasn't that under uh, direction of Yogi Bhajan or something? First time I saw her was at a winter solstice and I go, whoa. And, about 30 minutes later, Yogi Bhajan calls me over and says, Guru Singh, how old are you? And I said, I'm 30. And he says, Hi, you're getting too old to be a bachelor. Have you noticed someone recently? See? Interesting. Right? What you just asked. He said the sleight of hand, the magic sure. way, knowing without knowing, right? right? And all that. Yeah, he tuned in and he, he, he goes, Oh, Guru Singh is walking over there. Oh, I. Ah, he just noticed somebody about 30 minutes ago, you know, and that all that information comes through, right? And if you know what to do with it, then you can use it. So I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier. It relates to this, but it's, it's how we can frame what we call ego, because I think there was so much value in that, in that I spent so many years in my early spiritual pursuit, like trying to, you know, I even used to use the term, I got to smash the ego. You know, it's always like <laughs> fighting that, you know, and the whole paradigm of sin within mm. religion. Ah. What's really been helpful to me, and I'd love to get your perspective on for the listeners, is to, over the years, I've really just made friends with what I consider to be ego. Mm -hmm. And it does things, and I almost pat it on the head. Oh, good job, good job. Yeah. It's trying to protect me. It has the right idea, and its yeah. intentions are survival, which does serve my highest good. Yeah. So it's like I've actually more embraced ego, in a sense, and not trying to consider it as bad or evil, but also become aware enough of it so that it doesn't 
motivate all of my thoughts and deeds. Yeah. Does that make sense from your standpoint or how would you further contextualize ego in a way that is, you know, useful and surmountable to some degree? Ego is in every moment. And as I was saying before, ego is what ego does. So if in a moment you're having a thought about how you're going to approach a circumstance, your ego is giving you that capacity to have that thought and to approach that circumstance. Now, if you approach it in a reduced fashion, right, you're going to approach it in a very, what I would call timid way, but what some people call a respectful way, right? You approach with a very, oh, you know, no, no, no. That can be considered, according to one opinion, to be appropriate. To another opinion, it's like, come on, get, get into yourself, right? Well, that's why I call the whole mandate behind be egoless, be desireless, you know? It's meaningless. <laughs> Because we need people like yourself, the people that are here in this moment, my wife, our children, our grandchildren, your loves, all of our associates, all of the people around them, all of the people around them. We need to be standing up in a fully present way and strong ego not one that is defiant of other ways, one that is understanding of other ways, but still standing up. You know, you can you cannot offend somebody by being nothing, or you cannot offend them by being everything, including them, in helping them, in assisting them, in being with them, in supporting them, in embracing them. It's just, which one of those are you going to be? The one that is the perceived appropriate nature for ego to not be overwhelming? Or the one that is continuously overwhelming and through mistakes, because you're going to make a lot of mistakes when you start entering into that full presence. You're going to make a fool of yourself. You're going to make a jerk of yourself. You're going to make people upset with you. You know, I remember a person with a sign on their desk says, please don't, what was it? Please excuse me, God's not finished. You know? <laughs> Please excuse me, God's not finished. And you've That's got a, to be... I need a, a t-shirt of that that I wear every day. Yeah. Because when you are going to step into your full self, when you are going to employ your ego for good, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to upset people. But you have to be able to forgive yourself when you upset people and forgive them for being upset. But you have to keep up and you have to keep doing what you're doing and being who you're being. I'll tell you, what you do, going around and interviewing people that have knowledge, that have wisdom, asking them questions, if you didn't have some form of a positive ego with a negative questioning bent, you wouldn't be able to do this. So you have to be able to have a positive ego, a negative ego, and a neutral ego in order to do what you do. Because otherwise, you're silent, 
the airwaves that would have been filled with good information from your questioning and your observing and all of that would be silent and nobody would be gaining the benefit of any of that. So ego is so essential and you've got to build it and build it and build it and we've got to be willing to make mistakes. We have a school that we reward mistakes as well as we reward correct. Because if you make a mistake, it means you attempted something that you didn't know how to do, and that's courageous. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, check this out. I recently launched something on my site called The Master Market. It's a super cool store where I've got different categories, whether it be spirituality, mind focus, outdoors, food, superfoods, supplements, bedroom, sleep, office, jet lag, biohacking. There's even a bookstore from some of my favorite books and books recommended by my guest. And what this is, is like a hub where you can go find all of the links to everything I've either used and vetted or I'm currently using in my life to build the ultimate lifestyle. So it's called The Master Market, Luke's Lifestyle List, and you can find it at lukestory.com forward slash store. Just go to my site and you'll see it in the navigation. Now, what's really cool about this is when you make a purchase through my store, I'm not actually selling you anything. I'm just curating a really dope place where you can go find the best stuff. So I get a piece of commission if you make a sale through the site. The vendor, of course, makes some cash because you buy and you get a place where you can go and save time and money from not having to look around for the best stuff and do all the research yourself. But what's even cooler is most of those items come with a custom discount code if you go through my site, which is pretty cool. So it's a win, 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 triple trifecta win. Great way to support my work and the podcast and the show, as well as the brands and your own health and well-being. Check it out. LukeStory.com forward slash store and now back to the interview i think from my mistakes i've learned more yes than my you know wins really absolutely i always think of a little baby when they learn how to walk mm -hmm. you know they learn how to walk from falling on their ass over and over again and every time i try to do something new like a romantic relationship or a new business venture and i meet resistance that appears on the surface to be failure mm -hmm. on the other side of that discomfort is like aha now i know how not to do it mm -hmm. you know it's like the uh, the edison thing right oh how did you fail so many mm -hmm. times and keep pushing on i said what i never failed i succeeded in whatever it was 10,000 times of how you don't build a light bulb yeah <laughs> you know yeah. but again it goes back to that contextualizing things and framing things in a certain way yeah because i could go out and do what i'm doing and also start to think that i'm you know leaving the ego unattended i could start to take on the identity of being a personality or being popular or having such and such amount of followers or whatever so it's like the ego has got to be involved in helping to motivate me to do what i'm doing but it also has to be kind of you know kept in its place is that a uh -oh. way you would how would you frame that? Everything that you said was absolutely spot on, mm -hmm. except for keeping it in its place. Mm, okay. When you engage trust and accountability, what you get in return is a trusting accountability. Now, you may gain some things before that full trust and accountability, which are things kind of going off the rails. and But if you really engage trust and accountability, then what ends up happening is you get surrounded by that same frequency. So if you start to believe in the intelligence of your body, you start to believe in the intelligence of your emotions, you start to believe in the intelligence of your devotions, 
you start to believe in the intelligence of your total construct of the ego, then what ultimately happens is you end up with everything working in harmony and concert. It's called a self-organizing system. Your physical body is actually, right, from conception, it doesn't have something telling it what to do. It is a self-organizing system. So from that single cell, it divides, it divides, it divides, it divides. And what is behind all of that division is the programming in the DNA. So why, once we're born with trillions of cells created in numerous systems that are all functioning in harmony, why would we think that once the child is born, that somehow it doesn't do the right thing? Somehow it is going to run off the rails. Because everything that gave you your body, that gave you your emotions, that gave you your mental capacities, that gave you your spiritual awareness, all of that is a self-organizing system. So for us to sit in the midst of all of that and say, oh, I got to control my ego. I got to make sure that I don't do anything wrong. It's like, who is that character? Sitting in the middle thinking that this whole universe operating as perfectly as it does with planets and suns and systems and galaxies and universes and megaverses beyond the universe, multiverses beyond the megaverse. How can we think, I got to control my <laughs> anger. I got to control my ego. You know, it's foolish. So an important component of that whole thing is called forgiveness which means to give yourself forward to the present moment from a moment that's already been enacted in the past. So not hanging on to old moments, give yourself forward. So you're, you're doing what you're doing and you completely mess up. Fantastic. Like you said, Thomas Edison, ha, I'm one point co closer to the result, yeah. right? I love that. Yeah. I love that way of thinking. Yeah. So say, oh, I won't do that again. Or if I do it again, I'll do it again. Yeah. I'll need to learn it again. Yeah. In terms of negative emotions, you mentioned something earlier how we always have access to this state of bliss, mm. something to the effect, right? I'm going back a little bit, but I, I have to cover this. We were talking about the parking ticket and, mm. you know, a few thoughts away is like, oh my God, this is so ridiculous. Who cares? No problem. I'm super happy. It's the best day ever when you're able to sort of frame that. When one experiences negative emotions and it's something that's acute, like you know, rage or mm. sudden fear or something like that, or even a traumatic loss, say the death of a loved one or something mm. of that nature, a breakup, you know, those big moments that seem to happen all in one instant, would you say that the fastest way around a feeling or a situation like that is through it? Mm -hmm. How do you deal with a pain or a loss like that or you know, a really powerful, what we call a negative emotion? Like, how do you dive into that and just allow that to be, to transmute it into a place where everything's okay again? I give it time. I give it not time. I give it a time. Not just confined to a time, but I give it its time. So I'll say, okay, I'm going to work with this grief, or I'm going to work with this anger, or I'm going to work with this information that I'm dealing with at 4 o'clock tomorrow morning. I'm going to work with that which is troubling at 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon or 
8 o'clock this morning. So I'm going to set aside some time that I can actually sit and process it. And I can process it through breathing it. I can process it through singing to it, a mantra. I can process it through, if I'm feeling it in my body, I can stretch into it. I can do yoga asanas to enable me to embrace it physically or go to the ocean, some place that has a big, st a big structure, a mountaintop or an ocean, a forest, and I can rage. If I'm, if I'm dealing with rage, then I should express that rage, but not express it in a setting where it's going to have repercussions, because I can express an emotion that's dealing with something else in a setting that is quite innocent of that emotion, and all of a sudden I've engaged this setting now, and I have to now deal with the repercussions of that. So one of the things that I learned actually as a young yogi, you know, five-year-old, eight-year-old, ten-year-old, because being a young yogi, you actually have to put up with a lot of opposition. Hmm? Nobody understood who I was, nobody, you know. So I had a lot of to deal with. One time I came home crying. I must have been seven or eight. My mom says, what's going on? She, I said, nobody will play with me anymore. You know, the neighborhood basketball hoop, right? Nobody will play with me anymore. They say I'm a heathen. A heathen, she says. Well, let's find out what that means. Go get the dictionary. And it was back in the day when the family had the dictionary, right? Sure, the, big, yeah. the big family dictionary. Brought over the dictionary and we open it up to H and we look down to heathen and we read it and she says, yep, you're a heathen. Now you go out there and you be the best heathen that ever existed, right? You go out there and you just be a heathen of heathens. And that all of a sudden completely disassembled the negativity of the word. All it means is that a person who believes or doesn't believe a certain way, captured by the emperor's languaging. Right. And it wasn't that we didn't believe. It was that we practiced a different way. And you know that a word for six and seven-year-olds that is coming out like heathen didn't come out of their brain. It came out of the parental talk. Yeah. So she knew that, but she didn't have any problem with that. Why should she build a problem into her life? Because the neighbors are having a problem with who, what our lives were. And so she taught me that incredible, take it on. Take it on. When somebody says, you're full of yourself, you're really being full of yourself, go, thank you for noticing. <laughs> right? Just be full of yourself and then... Pretty soon, if you keep up long enough, they'll come up and say, yeah, I like being around you because I can be full of myself, right? And you will attract those that are attracted to who you are. Awesome, man. I love that. So when you had this near-death experience, what happened in the in-between time? Well, I could create the short answer and say, everybody's going to have to read the book, but I won't. You know, you, you should read the book that describes the whole thing. But what happened in the in-between time was that because it wasn't my time, right, the subtle body had not left the body, that it was a time when the body was in dormancy for that minute and 45 seconds. 
while my spirit body led by led by soul body was out getting some renewal courses and the interesting thing is that I was born in 45 and the palmist said you were supposed to be born in 66 this happened in 65 Mm. So it was like I died to be reborn in the time when I was scheduled <laughs> right, to come in, right. but I had dropped in early to capture, capture all of that from, you know, Sri Yukteswar, Paramahansa Yogananda, and all the family members. And what happened in that minute and 45 seconds was that I was beyond time. So to me, it was an elongated sensation. Could have been days, weeks, months, years. Really didn't have that definitive timeline on it and I went through a process of of reintegration repurposing myself behind my desire in life what was my desire in life what was I to do in life immediately after that I blew off the draft board in a very psychotic way I, What'd you do? I just did what you should do in a group of people are stripping you naked and trying to order you around to subjugate. Just go stark raving nuts and they'll figure you're beyond what we can use. And so that's, that was always my plan. <laughs> that's exactly what I did. I went stark raving nuts but not with like that. Like at a recruitment center or yeah, something? Yeah, no, like it that? was at the draft center. I was <laughs> in for my physical, and um, yeah, uh, they had us all stripped naked. They were, they were horsing us around. They were giving us this and that and the other thing to weighing us and this and that, making us sign stuff. And all of a sudden, I just, because there was no way that I was going to serve in somebody's army to go kill people that hadn't done any wrong to anybody, right? The bottom line is, is that you This is Vietnam? Vietnam. Yeah. And um, I just reached out into the cosmos and grabbed that psyche from the cosmos and I became that cosmic psyche which did not fit in that room. And so I went running through the room with all things going out of my body, blah, blah, and what you can read about that. And they tackled me and put a straitjacket on me and locked me up in a room and started questioning me and I was just not to be known because what they were about wasn't what I was going to be about, and there was no way we were going to get from point A to point B in that system. Because you can take over a system, and that's actually what we all have to be doing. And I don't mean going psychotic, because yeah. that's good for certain small-scale operations. <laughs> yeah. But for the large-scale operation, we don't go psychotic, we go cosmic. So we all realize with big ego and big benevolent intention, we all realize that we are who we are like the song, I am who I am, that is that. We end up becoming so big and so bold within ourselves that there's nothing that can contain us. We're like the kundalini yogis. We're like the yogis of a thousand years ago when the moguls that had invaded India were trying to subjugate the masses. And they realized they couldn't subjugate the yogis. And that's when they said it was illegal for for yoga to be taught openly and publicly in kundalini yoga particularly and that's why it was called dangerous you could get put in jail you could be executed all of those things but what we have to do is we have to all become that really stellar self 
Take your ego, put it into gear, rise inside yourself. That's what Swami Muktananda did to bring him out of India to teach all the people. That's what Yogi Bhajan did to bring him out of India to teach Swami Satchitananda, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh or Osho, right? Everyone that ever came, you, for doing what you do on your podcasting, everyone that ever came into themselves and realized, I have a mission that's larger than just sustaining life. I have a mission in this life. And that's what we have to do. And that's what I did in that moment because there was no way that I was going to do their bidding for them. Yeah, it's hard for me to imagine you running through the jungle with the machine oh, yeah. gun. <laughs> no. and, you know, Lighting a, fire to villages that you don't even know the people in. Yeah. There's an old saying, what if they threw a war and no one showed up? Right. Hmm? What if, what if, what if we just all said, uh-uh? Can you imagine? And that's what we can do. We can be the big uh-uh to the way things seem and the big aha to the way we know things are. When you did that with the draft evasion, which I, I love that technique, it's what I always envisioned if there were a draft and also what I've done incrementally at various times with a jury duty, mm. <laughs> you know, is a, a written back and it's been a long time, knock on wood, but uh, back in the day I would write like a crazy letter, you know, that just said a bunch of really offensive, weird stuff. Mm. And then lo and behold, they never threw me on a, on a jury. I don't think I'm the right guy for that job. I have another calling. So speaking of your calling, at what point were you given your spiritual name and told that, hey, it's your turn now to carry the torch and, and this message? My spiritual name came in, uh, in 1969 through Yogi Bhajan. And when I decided that I was a master, it was my obligation to be masterful. And that's what the obligation of everyone is. No one is here to tell you that now it's your time. It's your time to tell yourself now it's your time. And when you determine that now it's my time, my time to carry the torch, my time to be the master, my time to be the Messiah. You know, let's use some big words, some big <laughs> trademarked words, right? Jesus never said he was the way. He said, I am the way, not this. He said, I am the way. In French, the word for I am is je suis, and that's where the word Jesus comes from. Comes from, wow. comes from I am. So when he said, I am the way, he meant the I am, which is in everyone, is the way. Was it your mom that gave you your love of language? from you know, going in the study and pulling out the dictionary. I, I noticed in a lot of your teaching, you'll make these sort of word pairs and break down words a lot like that, much like you just did. Is that where that habit came from? I think it came through um, Sri Yukteswar and my mom and dad, and then Yogi Bhajan. He re-emphasized it. I learned it when I was a small child from my mom and dad who had learned it through the lineage of Sri Yukteswar and Paramahansa Yogananda. And then it was um, Yogi Bhajan who said, yeah, this is, this is a good way because he loved it too. You know, he loved breaking down words and etymology and the removal of etymology, the removal of Latin and Greek from the classic languages from education 
That's how we know how things came to be. The removal of art and music from education, which is the way of knowing how things can be, mm. is a removal of two ends of education that give what is left in education no place to go. Wow. So you remove how everything came to be, <laughs> and then you remove how every possibility and imagination can be, and now you've stuck a person in the center of that process with no place to come from and no place to go to. So they're isolated, they feel alone, they can be ordered around. Wow. And that is not a human lifestyle to be ordered around. Would you say that in some places on Earth right now, the education system has been engineered expressly for that purpose absolutely. <laughs> it sure seems like it absolutely no i mean you know? and and let's forget about let's forget about you know i have a a book title of one of my books that i'm going to say um i won't uh put it in the podcast but it's basically theory this conspiracy is a fact mm. so blank theory right Add the blank word, whatever you want to put in there. Blank theory. This conspiracy is a fact. There is no theory about this conspiracy. Conspiracy means people conspire. In other words, they spire with each other. They spire with each other. They put their effort, which is what spire means. They put their effort with each other into an activity. And it's not bad people doing bad things. It's people doing things. And what do people do? What do little tiny babies that have never been trained, they eat their own elimination. They eat their own poop, right? <laughs> they have to be trained that it tastes bad. They have to be trained that it smells bad. You can't smear that on your, you know, you don't do that, right? The bottom line is, is that people are being trained and somebody has to stand up and it's you, it's me, it's all of those like us because we need millions of messiahs on earth right now and we're in the process of creating them. Your podcast going out to all these people, I hope it inspires them to say, well, yeah, <laughs> me too. You know, me too in this really incredible way. I mean, let's face it. You know, there's this whole sexual thing that's going on on earth right now with all of these people coming out and saying, yeah, I was assaulted and I was this and I was that. And yes, that stuff does happen in a society that doesn't have a higher level of understanding and capacity. And what we need to do in once we get all of this kind of settled down and I'm not saying to crush it. I'm just saying, you know, yeah, let it come up. Let it expose itself. Let it do what it has to do. But then we have to go to the backside and go, okay, now how do we train a society so that that's not the norm? Because it's not just the norm in the entertainment industry. They're saying it. Now they're bringing it out on Wall Street. They're bringing it out here. They're bringing it out there. It's been an education all along. Come on. I mean, you know, college professors, uh, high school teachers, this, that, and the other thing. I mean, it's been going on forever. What we have to do is we have to, okay, now is the age of exposure, but now we have to have the age of alternative. And that means that we have to show people how they can become their full self. So when they're lost in one of those very troublesome moments in which they think, 
that if they can be aggressive against somebody that appears to be less strong, uh, weaker than they are, that they don't go, oh, let me take advantage of this. And rather than let me take advantage of somebody weaker than I am, let me see somebody weaker than I am and say, ah, oh, let me let them feel safe. Let me then nurture them within that safety so they grow into their strength, so that they become equal to me, so that I don't have to feel like I need to dominate people. And that's the big lesson that's coming out in all of this exposure, whether it's political exposure or sexual exposure or economic exposure. That's what we have to bring out of it is that, yeah, there's a big corruption going on in the world right now. How do we produce a future without that corruption. We need to contain the corruption. We need to deal with the corruption. We have to put a lot of energy also into the future that doesn't have that corruption. Yeah, it's interesting to watch the proliferation of media and reality now mm. and all of these things that are coming to light. There's all of this darkness, but then there's also what we're doing right here mm. that's equally as available to people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can go on podcasts all day long and get all of the spiritual information needed for a million lifetimes yes. in a couple of days, yes. you know? And so it's like, it's interesting to be at this time versus going back, as you say, when Yogi Bhajan came and taught here, he was forbid by his tradition and I guess would mm -hmm. it be the caste system or whatever in India that this information is only for mm -hmm. a this group of a people. A few people, yeah. Right? And now it's like all information is for all people. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's still many tips of the pyramid that we're unaware of, but a lot of the stuff is coming unraveled and all of these quote-unquote conspiracy theories turn out to not be theories, but in many, and I would say no, it's most a fact. cases, it's a fact. Yeah, they're conspiracy facts. Yeah. You look at the JFK stuff that's coming out now even, you know, it's yeah. like, well, duh, we've all known this. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. we're still not getting the whole truth, but as nothing yeah. is as it seems. And I think even your average person is becoming aware of that. Yogi Bhajan was told when he said he was coming to the West, to the industrialized West to teach Kundalini Yoga openly and publicly, he was told, you'll die within a year. His response to that was, great, it'll be the best year of my life. <laughs> I picked him up on oh, day 366, right? One day past one year. I picked him up on day 366, and he slides into the car, and he says, huh, good morning, Satnam. I knew it was bullshit. <laughs> I go, what? What is? And he said, I was told I'd die in a year. I'm one day past a year. Right? Yes. This is our opportunity to not listen to that false requirement of humility. The way you're humble is to be your full self and then take care of others. Not to be humble. Oh, I'm, oh I am just nothing. Oh, I am just nothing. You know, the old, the old metaphor of being humble, you know, where you're, oh, I am less than, you know, I am less than. No way. No, you are the greatest thing that ever existed and everyone else is equal to you. <laughs> Can you imagine having a child and having that child going around, oh, I am nothing, I am nothing. You'd go to your child and you'd say, come on, <laughs> step it up right? If there is such a thing as a mother-father 
of the cosmos, right? That's what it is asking of us. Step it up. Be your greatest, greatest self. Be offensive and then excuse yourself and figure out ways of doing the same <laughs> thing without offending. Oh, that's funny. Yeah? <laughs> One of my favorite principles is it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> you know that one? <laughs> That's a really good motto. Yeah. You know, for one's life. Yeah. Pushing the envelope. I, in, the, in the positive sense. In of the course, positive. You know? yeah. yeah. Have ethics. I mean, I do that Have sometimes. integrity. But push the envelope. I think about that with like recording sometimes because I'll show up with my, you know, some of this media equipment and things like that. And I'll have the idea, oh, I guess I should ask someone if I can do this or if I can do that. And anymore, I just start unpacking my gear and filming and recording until someone in a, you know, uniform comes and tells me to stop. And what's funny is most of the time I find if I have the momentum, they might even ask me about it and then just let me keep doing it because it's harder to stop me once I'm in motion. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. So Set precedence. Yeah. yeah. So going back to the, the Kundalini thing, because I, I had actually a lot of questions in mind about this particular practice, so I don't want to forget them, but I love the direction we've gone. But it sort of segues into what we're saying about there's this what seems to me an esoteric teaching, uh, yogically speaking, that is relatively narrow in the scope of most yogic traditions. Like Kundalini yoga seems to me as sort of set apart in its own little thing. You know, there's different mantras and, and languaging and styles of dress and it, it's, it's all community and everything, at least in America, is quite different than some of the other yogas that might all kind of blend together, you know? So what's the story on the origins of this particular particular practice? And was Yogi Bhajan kind of the first and only guy to bring it over here? Uh, were there other teachers in India left behind that took it to other places in the world? Like, what's the story with this particular uh, sect of yoga? The reason it's called Kundalini Yoga as taught by Yogi Bhajan is that he, in his awareness, when he first came here, he was basically kind of like a dowsing rod. He was experiencing what was needed in the industrialized West. And Kundalini Yoga, as taught by Yogi Bhajan, he always said was a highway where there's a lot of city streets that you can get somewhere. The elevated highway is how you get there more rapidly. And he also said that it was a way that you could not need to be a renunciate, not need to... Uh, remove yourself from your daily activities, that you could actually find that same enlightened awareness while holding down a job, having a family, having responsibilities, that it was that capacity to get there more rapidly or get there through all of everything else you're doing so that you didn't have to spend all that time in seclusion, so to speak. So what we have is that he came, he was able to teach any number of the 22 forms of yoga, and he decided, you just, she's just going for your, she's <laughs> going for your water there. That's funny. Yeah. yeah, those of you listening were just, I was just toying with different places of putting my glass of water so his puppy didn't drink out of it. <laughs> and she got to it. She's smart. <laughs> she it's got all right. you, babe. It's all you. All right, she go got ahead. right to it. So, he then sensed what was going to be an important way of working. 
And one of those important ways of working was to build into these strong kriyas, these strong techniques, the ones that would build your electromagnetic field, that would connect your nervous system to be able to withstand the assault of the times, right? The digital times, as he was talking about it. And how to build your immune system to withstand these times, how to build your circulatory, your respiratory system to withstand these times, and to bring it to a place where you can live in this really, really corrupt world. And I don't say that in a derogatory. I'm, I'm saying that in an observatory way, right? But there's a lot of corruption in the world that is just coming into place because we're polluting the waters, we're polluting the airs, we're polluting the earths, we're doing all of these, we're cutting down the forests, we're doing so much in our consumptive way. And he realized that he had to from his vast knowledge of all different forms of yoga, bring together those pieces that are going to be really important for life on earth in the 21st century, in the late 20th and 21st century and going forward. And that's what created this Kundalini Yoga as taught by Yogi Bhajan. Is it a narrower form? It includes all forms. You know, when we're at places where there's large gatherings, summer solstice, lightning in a bottle, Satnam Fest, all of these different places in which there's a large gathering. Some of the yogis that fascinate me the most are the ones that are into their Hatha practice after Sadhana, into their Iyengar practice, into their Ashtanga practice. And I do that with them, you know, because I love all of that. It was how I was raised to, to really love all. Yogananda had a church of all religions, right? It was a way of of moving forward. I mean, the dress is, I'll be quite frank, I wrap my head. I don't cover my head. I wrap my head because when you wrap your head, if you take a towel and wrap your head, you know, you can feel like it sucks your energy right up there. And when my head is wrapped, it's when I feel my strongest. You know, these are pajamas. What we wear in India, they're called pajamas. You know, kurtan churidas, they're pajamas. And so I spend my whole day in my pajamas, which is cool, right. which is really cool. And because I teach so much yoga, you're most comfortable, you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to do yoga in blue jeans. You know, you can't stretch because the, the fabric catches you. And so we do wear, you know, simple shoes. We wear very loose-fitting clothing or... If we go to Lululemon, I guess we fit, we're in tight clothing. But the bottom line is, is that it's the way we look and the way we dress is because it's really comfortable and really accentuates the energy. And the reason that we oftentimes dress in white is that white is the combination of all the colors. So we're not influenced by any one of the colors more than we are by all of the colors. So there's a technology behind everything. Hmm? But we're not then saying, this is the way. Wrap your head because that's the way, or wear white because that's the way. No, we're able to work in the world because this is how we live, and then we're going to teach you tools that are going to get you through the world, and whatever of those tools you want to use in your daily practice is perfect. You know, Those are the ones that are meant for you. Those are the ones that will work for you.
Well, I think that's something that appealed to me about Kundalini classes in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And yours might have been the first one, if I'm not mistaken. I don't even know if I knew what it was Mm -hmm. at the time at Yoga West. I've never been put off by spiritual dress and Mm -hmm. incense. And like, I'm all in with the silk pillows and flower, you know, like Mm -hmm. I can go there. But I also usually end up wearing, I'm wearing all black in a Kundalini class. And after going for a while, there's something I noticed about you and some of the other teachers that I've never been like looked at sideways because I'm not like fitting the part of a classic, you know, Kundalini yogi. I've never been told how to speak, even how to do a, well, maybe if my, something in a Kriya is incorrect, it'll be corrected. But, you know, other than that, you can lay down if you just want to rest. There's not like a strict sort of policy for anything. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be appealing because it's very inclusive. Like yeah, the one, whole Kundalini thing from the outside, one could be like, oh, it looks culty because everyone's wearing turbans and white. But once you're kind of around, it's the most open, free flow, mm-hmm. rule-free kind of yoga community you could imagine. Yogi Bhajan once said, showing up is 90%. Right, right. How you end up after you've shown up, that's the other 10. But showing up is 90%. And that's the most important thing is that no matter what you can get out of, you know, think of it in terms of digestion. We all take in a bunch of food. Our bodies don't use it all the same. And so when we're sitting in a yoga class, if laying down on the floor is all that you want to do in that moment, you're getting exactly what you need in that moment. I can remember one time I laid down in one of Yogi Bhajan's classes early on and somebody came over and tried to correct me. And Yogi Bhajan looked out at, down at the corrector and said, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. He's here. Yeah, right? <laughs> so with this, as you said, technology, and mm-hmm. I, I used to be baffled as to how something so seemingly not technological could be labeled as such, and mm-hmm. I want to get into that. But as you say, Yogi Bhajan took different elements from different yogas and kind of compartmentalized it together in such a way that created a very specific method by which one could awaken that energy and operate then in the world using that, but still be part of the world, the householder sort of Mm -hmm. power. How much of that stuff do you think that he just intuited and kind of made up? You know, like if you take a Kundalini class and it's just a repeat of something that was recorded that Yogi Bhajan taught... One thing I've noticed is you'll never have the same class twice. And almost every class I've ever done, there's some sort of movement or breathing or mantra that I've never heard of or seen before. Mm. It seems like there's an endless supply of teaching. So how much of that did he just kind of come up with? And how much do you think he retained that had been handed down through the traditions? All of it was retained from tradition, but it was his life from the age of well, from the age of birth, but, you know, really until he was cognitive, till the age of 38 when he arrived in this country. And what we ended up with was, I think, 12,000 recordings, either video or audio, you know, which means that we have a lot of material to work with. And when you access the library of teachings, which is, you know, free to access it, kri.org, you can find countless kriyas, mantras, asanas, classes that he taught. So you could go for a long time without repeating. I've noticed that. (laughs) I've noticed that. So you think that just in the course of his 38 years before he came here, he just, he managed to pick up different things and then 
Well, it was an intense 38 years. Right. You know, it was right. intense, concentrated study. And then when he would come up with his classes, do you, how much forethought do you think went into that? Would he write out, you know, a class no. beforehand or just make it up? Well, it, it wasn't a case of making it up, but it was a case of setting it up. Because hmm. he would come into the class just like I come into the class, which I learned from his, you know, from him doing it. And you have a theme. Mm. And then underneath that theme, you have some key points that you want to make sure you hit. So he would do it without notes. I always come into class with notes. I never necessarily look at those notes, but they're there. <laughs> like my notes right here. <laughs> and, you and you haven't looked at them very often. <laughs> no, I, I check down a couple times so I don't get pissed at myself afterward for yeah. skipping something. But yeah. And so main theme some sub points and then stories that fill in between and that main theme is going to be connected to the kriya of the class and the sub points are going to be connected to parts of the class maybe the mantra maybe the meditation maybe the mudra and then you go from there and the difference between an instructor and a master teacher would be that the instructor would take exactly what he did and said and just recite it to the class which is fine for those circumstances in which that is, uh, you know, appropriate. Um, and then a master teacher is one who will take all of what is going on, maybe in the world today, in the subject matter of the class, and weave them together so people can see how this theme, these subtopics, this kriya, this meditation fit into the way things are going on in the world. Do you ever walk into class? As I said earlier, a lot of, for those listening that haven't experienced this, a lot of your class, maybe the first half of it or so, is just sharing knowledge. Mm. So I'll notice you'll have a theme or you'll even have those diagrams that you draw. And when you get going down a rabbit hole, I mean, like you have to hang on to your seat to be able to stay with you. It's like, it gets heavy. Mm. Do you ever walk into class and just not have anything come up? You know, where you're just like, shit, I can't talk or I'm having a bad day or just mm -hmm. the flow feels stuck. It doesn't feel natural or authentic. Or do you ever sort of get stumped as a teacher when you come into a class? Mm -mm. No? Mm -mm. You just manage to stay out of the way of mm -hmm. yourself and just kind of whatever's going to happen, happens? Yeah, because my routine is in getting to class, whether I'm driving or being driven, is to begin to tune in to the amount of people that are going to come to class and by really just sort of sensing who's coming to class, right? Not by name or by face, but just the sense of people coming to a yoga center for the purpose of good, for the purpose to make their life better. And by leaving myself open to that, then with my, the theme that I've chosen and the set that I've chosen for the class, that fill that goes in between those markers will really come in. And I'll have people coming up to me all the time after class saying, wow, I really needed this. Wow, was, was this all about me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. what happens is when you leave yourself open to that kind of, of guidance, then you tune in to that which is in the room. And whether it's in the inflection of your voice or the words that you're using, people feel a, a connection. And it's not a presentation. It's a presence.
and we're all in the presence of that of that presence it's like this back and forth between you and me you know we're orbiting the points that you wanted and then we're moving off into you know free form and then one thing will lead to another thing and then then we'll get back to the point of oh and we were talking about ego or right something else and that's the freedom that is required to really be masterful. Yeah. It seems like you draw from different areas of research and knowledge. Mm. You'll talk about things in class that seem to be based in neuroscience, or you'll mention another teacher other than Yogi Bhajan. Mm. What are some of the other things that have been really useful in shaping your worldview and your teachings? Everything that you've said. So all of the sciences, whether it's earth science and geology, medical science, neurological, physics, astrophysics, astronomy, astrology, you know, all of those things, Hatha Yoga, Iyengar, um, Ashtanga, Kundalini, the Buddha, Jesus, Osho, <laughs> Swami Muktananda, Swami Satchitananda, Yogi Bhajan. I just love the wealth of the spirit and excellent physical sciences, the spirit sciences and the excellent physical sciences. So it's biology, it's botany, it's, you know, I mean, I'll pull out, you know, just boom, and that'll lead to, you know, a fact here. And that'll lead to a study that took place over here. And that'll lead to, even in the speculative area of like Atlantis and Lemuria, you know, I'm following this speculative train of thought and, you know, and then I have a, an intuitive download and so I'll express that intuitive download or I'll write about it in my daily writings or in some of my books. And then it'll be confirmed by something, you know, that's out there, that's actually been studied and double-blind studied and all of this stuff. And, and I'll go, ha, huh, there's an example. I went with my thoughts I went with my sensations. I could have doubted them. I could have said, well, let me not communicate this until it's really, really certain that it's true. And I don't mean that I'm, you know, blowing smoke, but, and because I'm not woo-woo. I think you've recognized that I don't go into this woo-woo state. I go into a state that tries to lock some things together and I explain the metaphysical or the deep spirit-based with some physical realities so that that's how we can get through to having an understanding to reach out to the misunderstanding so that we can get a little sense that it might be understandable. And if I didn't, and I look at these things constantly where I'll be going along a stream of thought and I'll teach a whole series of classes for a month on this particular stream of thought. And then two years later, there'll be this whole realization or revelation of these studies that confirm that stream of thought that came from a tiny little seed and I just expanded the bejeebers out of it. Right. And I'll go, ha, huh. if I'd have doubted, I would have hesitated. And if I'd have hesitated, right, those who hesitate are lost, if I'd have hesitated, all of the people that gained that knowledge back there two years ago wouldn't have gotten 
where they are today. And now here's this confirmation. <laughs> so I really deeply, yeah. deeply, deeply trust and account for the download that is happening based around the lens of some magical, logical components. But then I let that lens shine a whole bunch of information. Something just came to mind in terms of uh, something that's intuitive or a yogic tradition and then science sort of catching up later on oh, is the idea God. of cold oh, showers. Yes. You know, during Kundalini yoga, every yogi and yogini in Kundalini takes cold showers. And all of my like biohacker, super nerd friends in the past couple of years have been getting into ice baths and cryotherapy yes. and all this yes. stuff, which I'm really, really into and been doing that for since I was a little kid, really. Yes. Cold plunges in the yes. woods and things like that. So there's an example, right, of you could ask a yoga teacher, why is he telling me to take a cold shower? This makes no sense. And then you have study after study after study of the effects of cold temperatures on the nervous system and immune system, et cetera. And the getting up early in the morning. Yeah, that the, part I'm working on. And the whole circadian clock. Right, right. I mean, circadian clock is a medical scientific fact. They've studied the various glands and organs, and they knew that they know that they operate at their optimum. And now, they never knew that there was this thing called pineline. They knew that the pineal gland secreted melatonin, which is the keeper of your time, your body time, your biological timing. But they also then started to realize that this superactivity of the, of the pineal gland, and they called it pineline. And now there's all these studies coming out that, holy mom, it's actually DMT. It's, wow, it's, it's wow. dimethyltryptamine that's existing inside the brain. Now, taking it from the outside and putting it inside is an overload, and it takes you out into this region. Yes, it does show you some of the deep essence of what is. But if you overload and if you depend upon that overload, now you're not going to do the work. So it makes you spiritually lazy. Right? But inside your brain, inside the pineal gland, this thing that they've been calling pineline for all these, uh, about 40 years, is actually DMT. And you can access that when the pineal gland is most active, which is if you've been horizontal between one and three and you've been vertical between three and six, that's how you get the pineal gland to activate. Is this why morning sadhana is at yes. three in the morning? <laughs> yes. That's amazing. Yes. Because that, that DMT, I've never done exogenous DMT personally, you know, like in the form of ayahuasca or something like that, or toad, you know, yeah, yeah, juice yeah. that you toad smoke venom. or whatever. Toad venom. Yeah. But I have had many occasions at 3 a.m. in practice or otherwise where through different yogic kundalini breathing techniques i've gotten out of my goddamn mind in the best sense yep like on a natural high yep, and in, yep, yep. in every class i do i'm almost like man i hope we do some of that breath work stuff because mm -hmm. you know i'm a former drug addict might have something to do with that but i really like the yogic practices that like allow you to see a glimpse into another state of consciousness yes but i like where you're going with that that you become spiritually lazy if you sort of cheat the system. And I've talked to a lot of spiritual teachers about plant medicines and all of this stuff, and no one's been terribly pro or con, but they mostly have an underlying view that 
while it's fascinating to go in and take a snapshot of a room that it might be best to work your way through the wall and move in there mm-hmm. all the time, you know, mm-hmm. that maybe the well-earned path has a little more um, stability to it over time. What would be your view on that? It's exactly that. You can either watch a trailer, watch a movie, read a book, or have the experience firsthand. And some of the psychotropics are watching a trailer. Some of them are seeing the movie. Most people in life are just reading a book about life. They're, they're analyzing life, explaining it to themselves, determining whether or not they want to do this or do that. What we do in yoga and what most yogis do is that we have an experience of life. We actually go out there and live the story. Some people need to see a trailer before going to a movie. And some people need to see a movie before reading the book. And some people need to read the book before having the adventure. And so really what is happening here is is that we're in a world where all of this is available. And so to get into the position of saying this is right and this is wrong is going to defeat the ultimate purpose. Eventually people will find their way. What we have to do in, as teachers, is we have to create enough of an opportunity for people to find their way, whether it's online, in the room, however it's done, for people to find their way to their highest self, that they can then sustain that without having to take something to maintain it. And if it took getting them out of the social system to get into the adventure of discovery by having some experience, you know, some experience on ayahuasca, some experience on this. That's a dangerous game because some people's systems will be completely disrupted by it. Um, And we have to deal with that as we're working as teachers. But what we have to put out there as teachers is enough of those moments that you just described that you hope that they do that breath work so that you can have that experience. We need to, we need to build those experiences so that people can have them. Um, whether it's done through physical exercise, whether it's done through mantra, whether it's done through uh, breathing, however it's done, whether it's done through diet, whether it's done through fasting, however it's done. When talking about the science of Kundalini Yoga, I'm sure that it's a longer answer to really dive into than we have time for, but there's two things that I notice are prevalent and also very profoundly moving about this practice. One is the mantra and the vibration of sound that seems to always be going on. And then the other one is the various uses of breath. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a broad sense, how do those two things help to elevate our consciousness? Why are they so inherent to the practice? In the beginning of everything, back trillions, quadrillions, quintillions of earth years ago, it was just a vibration that got the whole thing rolling. And it was a vibration from what we don't know. And that's actually what in Zen Buddhism is known as that is what is, right? That which we cannot know what got the whole thing rolling. 
But every vibration is a sound. And so all of the mantras are mimicry of that sound. And just like we know that if you go to a doctor and they want to look down your throat, they say, say, ah, because that opens up the throat. Well, it not only opens up the throat, but it opens up the eustachian tubes, which go then into the inner ear. Well, then we understand that in the inner ear, there is your awareness of your entire, your entire physical body. But it's also that awareness that is just beyond your physical body. So now you start to have a feeling that's beyond your physical body. So as you're, and, and literally as you walk through time and space, you're in the inner ear, you're actually listening to the air molecules that are squishing so that you don't stub your foot, that you always know that the curb is there, lift it this far. The stairs are there, lift and go up the stairs. Everything, you know, you know that that glass is there, you reach out and you grab it and you drink your water. And everything is not just, you know, like robotic movement. You have this incredible capacity to know. She just realized there's another glass around that she can deal with. Oh, you are just... If anybody wanted to learn determination, they should just study you. You're, there you a go. Great, you're the great teacher of Here's determination. One. I love when dogs are a part of the show. Oh, yeah. It's the best. Even though the people listening can't get the experience, they get the, the effect of it. Oh, it's good. Yeah. And so... So the inner ear. The inner ear... Okay. And so when you're chanting, you're affecting the inner ear. You're actually clearing it with these long, sustained sounds and tones. You're clearing that inner ear. You're also clearing the reticular formation, which is the medulla and the pons of your primitive brain, which is at the very base of your brain. So chanting and the vibration of chanting is like those original sounds come to inside your body. So you're mimicking those original sounds inside your body, affecting the inner ear, affecting the reticular formation, affecting the hypothalamus in the top of your mouth, just above the top of your mouth, which then affects the pituitary, which then affects the pineal. All of these things happening with ek Affecting that whole mechanism inside of you. And the breath, <laughs> the breath is phenomenal. Just the movement of the diaphragm moves the sutures in your skull. It's like the fascia that's connected in the diaphragm wraps up around your head and adheres to your skull and makes a very, so you start to do deep breathing all of a sudden your skull starts breathing so microscopically, but that breath of the skull starts to move in the cerebral spinal fluid. When that fluid starts to move, all of the crystals around your brain, the nanocrystals in the fluid around your brain, and then down your spine, right? And all of a sudden they start to align. So the movement of the diaphragm is moving the cranium, is moving the cerebral spinal fluid, is aligning the nanocrystals, and then the kundalini, which is a light force, starts to shine up through that crystalline form. Whew. <laughs> Breath. <laughs> Dude, Breath. that is such a great 
simple yet profound explanation of that process. That's it. And as you're describing it, it's like I go, yeah, I know that feeling. Exactly. And you know I it know because the, you know it. It's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's that hint in the background of your, of your psyche. Yeah. And you go, and it's like one of those aha moments. Yeah. Well, it's and like, you go, yeah. 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 It's like when we very first started this conversation, which seems like four hours ago, I think we're an hour and a half now. That's that first thing that you are aware of, right? Is that there's something moving within. Mm. And then because it's novel, we want to understand intellectually what that is. So the novelty in me, the childlike curiosity is like, tell us all how the science works, even though I don't really need to be convinced. Yeah. My higher self has already had the experience of walking into class in a certain state of being, going through this process, doing certain breathing, certain mantras, et cetera, coming out and going, uh, wow, I'm living in a different universe mm -hmm. after an hour and a half yeah doing this stuff exactly it just works so it i like both works. sides but i like the experience of just doing it feeling the experiential realness of it but then i also like to kind of know how it works because it it almost like makes the buy-in even stronger it does in those moments where i might be doubting in the middle of a you know 31 minute kriya like oh my god why am i doing this this is so stupid it's so uncomfortable to remember there's a payoff and there's a science and there's a logic to this stuff, even though sometimes it seems kind of wacky and out there. And getting that experience and having that adventure is the reason why Yogi Bhajan produced this system out of all of what he could have brought in to teach. This is the system that he felt was applicable to the late 20th and early and the 21st century. I actually know that this um, mic will pick up, particularly the leveler mic, because to be confident that the infinite will take care of it, we're so fortunate. To be confident that the infinite will take care of it. We're so fortunate. And that's what we're talking about. You sit in the midst, confidence. There's another word, confidence. Fidence means faith. Con means with. Confidence, with faith. With faith. That the infinite, the cosmic everything, will take care of it. We're so fortunate. And then you go, oh yeah, of course that's the way it is. Thanks for picking up the guitar, dude. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to bring this wonderful conversation to a close. Of course, when I get in my car, I'll be like, oh, there was five more things. But I feel like we've given the audience a really nice package with a nice bow on it that says, here, this is this teaching at this point in time. So thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. In closing, who have been, I mean, obviously you've mentioned a couple of them. So maybe uh, if you can think of a couple teachings or teachers in your life that uh, we might be able to look to, to gain further insight and inspiration. Yogi Bhajan and all of the 
the wealth, the treasure of teachings. The story of Sri Yukteswar in both Autobiography of a Yogi and The Second Coming by Padmahansa. <laughs> Osho was a master of words. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, master of words. And then just in the practices themselves, in addition, I'll say that um, the interpretation of the Patanjali Sutras is probably, in my opinion, best depicted in um, Swami Satchitananda's version of the, of the Sutras of Patanjali's. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi has the 40 aspects of the human soul connection. If you can dig up a copy of those, um, he was actually the one that saved the human pineal gland because he was the one that asked for some doctors to come to India. That some neurologists that were thinking that because the pineal gland is only super active in children below the ages of seven, once the adult teeth come in, the pineal gland tends to reduce its activity, except in the circumstances of schizophrenic. Really? And what? so, and so, and so the uh, neurologists were thinking, well, let's remove the um, pineal gland. And then, thank God, um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the founder of TM, uh, said, please come and study people who meditate. And so then they found that the pineal gland is equally as active in meditators, people that are serious meditators, as it is in the schizophrenic. So what is the difference between, <laughs> what is the difference between insanity and higher consciousness? And what they realized was that the difference between insanity and higher consciousness was the ability to ride what the Eastern thought called the dragon, what the indigenous shamanic thought called the stallion. So when you're able to ride the dragon or ride the stallion of that energy and stay on board and stay with it and work with it, now you're a spiritual master. If not, you're just an insane person. <laughs> but it's the same that's energy wow. that's driving you. That's a trip. And that also just... I feel even more inspired to keep meditating because I didn't actually know that piece. I just know life tends to be a lot better the more I stick with that practice. The more you turn on your pineal gland. That's trippy. We actually and I also avoid uh, fluoride at all costs yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, My wife and I were involved in uh, Dr. Dharma Kulsa's study on the brain where we would be in an MRI tube chanting and meditating and doing mudra and what those studies have proven double-blind studies have proven are the mantras and the mudras in meditation stimulate particular areas of the brain and when we came out of the MRI tube and they had studying the film you know 5,000 slices per centimeter of our brain mass they said, my God, the two of you have huge brains. And it was found that two things keep the brain from shrinking. One is 
speaking three or more languages fluently or meditating for an hour minimum every day. And that will keep your brain active and fully expanded. Wow. I'm glad you mentioned the last one because I was like, yeah, I kind of lost. I had Spanish pretty good and then at one point added Portuguese to a decent degree. And I'm like, oh, man, no, Luke, please, I don't want to go back to language. Meditating, I can do that. There you go. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for that. And then lastly, where can we find your websites if someone wants to, you know, get an online course or come train with you and yeah. all your social media? Give us all the stuff that you want to promote. So... um you can find it all through our website, which has just been refurbished. Our, our daughter is uh, running our I saw that show. today. Looks really it, good. It's clean. It's easy to navigate. Grusing.com, G-U-R-U-S-I-N-G-H.com. Through that, you can get to all of our social media. You can sign up for our daily prayer that we send out, our daily uh, writing that, that we send out. 350 words, I figured that out because that's uh, 1,800 1800 characters because that was an Instagram maximum. Really? Yeah. And so it became, an, it became an assignment that every day I would put out this much, this much work, right? And um, we're starting up on November 17th, we're starting up a, um, a sadhana practice online sadhana practice, which we will flip every cycle of the moon, we'll, we'll introduce a new one. So we introduce it on the new moon, and then it, um, the next new moon we'll introduce another one. The first one is about confidence. Develop your confidence. Uh, develop your faith is basically what it is. And so there's a kriya, meditation, breathing, relaxation, a guided relaxation. Um, so that's there. We have many classes there. We have many guided meditations there. Uh, and we have our whole schedule of, of teaching when we're teaching in person. So awesome. there you go. Awesome, man. Well, sitting here with you has made me want to get into practice right now. <laughs> like, I need to go to a class today. Good. So I've been out of town for a couple of weeks and fell ill and was like, I was in Aspen at a yoga festival and cool. I couldn't do yoga. You oh know, my. I was just like, ah. So yeah, it's giving me the hunger. So thank you so much for your time today. And Good uh, to have I look you forward with to seeing you soon. I look forward to it also. I don't know about you, but I am feeling the kundalini energy traveling up my spine, decalcifying my pineal gland, and I am lit, okay? So I want to thank you for joining me on this Christmas. You have been my gift. I hope this episode has been a gift to you as it was to me. I want to thank our very special guest, Guru Singh, for spending this time with us. What a fantastic download of wisdom. I mean, like, we went almost two hours and I feel like we barely scratched the surface. So I have a feeling if all goes well and it's in the will of the universe that we will be having Mr. Guru Singh back again. So thanks to him. Thanks to you. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, whatever it is you're getting down with. Make it fun. Make it happy. I also want to remind you that it would be great to have you back this Friday, two in one week, man. That's how I'm rolling in December for Quantified Bob. And that one, my friends, is super hardcore. It's recorded in New York City. And if you're into health and hacking your body and optimizing and 
uh, work on your performance and into anti-aging, you do not want to miss this Friday show. So to ensure that you don't miss it, here's a couple things that you can do. You can, of course, just click subscribe on your podcast player. That way, old Quantify Bob and every other episode will be automatically uploaded to your device or your iTunes if you're listening on a computer. Or you can be even smarter than that and you can join my newsletter. That is really easy. Ready to learn how to do it? Okay, if you're at a computer, just go to this URL, lukestory.com forward slash newsletter. Wow, confusing, right? Not. Super basic. lukestory.com forward slash newsletter. Enter your email. You're good to go. Now, if you want to make it even easier and you are in the USA and have a USA phone, you can text the word lifestylist to the number 44222. So again, on a US phone, text the word lifestylist to the number 44222. That's one word, all lowercase, lifestylist to 44222. Or again, go to lukestory.com forward slash newsletter. Now what happens when you get on the newsletter? Your life becomes exponentially awesome because each week I send you a newsletter, an email of course, with all of the show notes and all of the information that took place in that interview. So for example, if you were already on the newsletter, you would have gotten an email this morning when the Guru Singh episode dropped with every single link of everything that he referred to, totally clickable, all the research done for you. So you know when you're listening to a podcast and you're like, oh damn, what was that book or what was that supplement or device or place or person or whatever was mentioned and then you try and screen grab like this is what I used to do I used to screen grab like the timestamp on my podcast player and then when I would get home I'd try to remember to go google that thing and look it up ain't never gonna happen all right so I'm taking the pain away <laughs> I'm a I'm a walking painkiller for you just get on my newsletter I'm very respectful I don't spam you I don't send you weird stuff I just send you tons of uh, I hope interesting and chronic content around the podcast and videos and things like that. So join the newsletter and you will stay informed about all things The Lifestylist and LukeStory.com. Thank you again for joining me on my own personal journey into things unknown. Until we meet again, good night and good day from The Lifestylist Podcast. Don't forget, if you want to take your healing and your consciousness to the next level, go over to ampcoil.com. That's A-M-P-C-O-I-L, ampcoil.com, and get down with some crazy frequency energy over there. That's ampcoil.com. Ampcoil.com.